Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a good friend of the show, Radhika Desai, who is a political economist and the author of the book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. This is a series that we're doing based on her book. Radhika is also a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. And the, this book actually is available for free. And you can download a PDF of the book. I will link to it in the description below. It has been made publicly available with the support of the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. And in the previous part of the series, which I will also link to in the description below, so you can check out all of the different episodes. In the previous installment, we discussed the inherent contradictions within the capitalist mode of production. So we looked, for instance, at the crises of overproduction and underconsumption, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, the trend toward monopolization and financialization of the economy. And in this discussion today, we're going to be discussing chapter three of Radhika's book, which is the geopolitical economy of capitalism and socialism. And this is a very uh, broad chapter, and there are so many interesting points that you raise, Radhika, I want to begin with the discussion of the concept of uneven development and also combined development. And you talk about uneven and combined development. But I want to start specifically looking at uneven development, the way in which capitalism develops different regions of the world in terms of different countries, but also within countries, different areas develop at different rates. And because of imperialism, frequently certain areas like the global south are not developed as greatly as areas in the core of the, the world system. And even within countries themselves, often, for instance, rural areas are not developed as much as urban areas. But I think it's, it's important to, to start our discussion here today because you raise a very interesting point about the class struggle and also the struggle between nations. So frequently when we hear people on the left talk about the class struggle, talk about capitalism and socialism, they frequently do it within the terms of national boundaries. The struggle of low-wage workers and precarious workers against big corporations. And obviously, that is an important element of the, the class struggle. But what's often left out of it is, is likewise the way in which the class struggle maps itself on the nation internationally. I'm just going to read a, an excerpt of your book here because I think you put it very well. You say, just as class inequality leads to class struggle within societies, international inequality leads to struggle between nations. If the content of class struggles is the distribution of surplus income and control over social production, that of the international struggle is the international division of labor and the position of various nations in its hierarchy. The more advanced capitalist nations, that is the imperialist nations, they seek to maintain and extend the uneven distribution of productivity and productive power and the resulting control over the sources of surplus profit that privilege them and permit them to impose the costs of their own capitalism's contradictions on other societies. So. That's a very big topic to start our discussion with today. But can you talk about how it's not simply a matter of struggle between classes within nations, 
but also between different nations and how this leads to imperialism and also uneven development. Yeah, so it's a great place to start, uh, Ben, and a great link between what we are going to talk about today and what we talked about in the previous show and about the previous chapter. Because essentially, one of the core, because what you're doing is you're touching on the core arguments of geopolitical economy as an approach to understanding the world that capitalism has created. So uh, why is that? Because the key point that I make, which is really uh, also the key point that Marx and Blake Marx's successors have made, is that in order to understand the evolution of the world of capitalism, it's important to understand that capitalism is contradictory. The contradictions of capitalism essentially make it expansionist and therefore make, cap make capitalist countries imperialist. And then this has further consequences. On the one hand, to the extent that their imperialism is successful, they become wealthier and they, uh, and they become wealthier as a, as a result of their ability to both externalize the consequences of their contradictions onto other countries, that is to say, make other countries pay the cost of that. And of course, from directly taking advantage of exploiting other countries. So in that sense, you also touched on another very core point of, um, of this book and of my previous book, Geopolitical Economy, which is that it is important in order to understand this world, not just to talk about class politics, which is what, unfortunately, all too many people who call themselves Marxists confine themselves to. They talk about class politics, but not international politics. Um, so it's important to talk about class politics, but also the politics of countries, because just as some classes, capitalist classes, landlord classes, etc., exploit other classes, namely working classes and people. So the imperialist countries exploit uh, the, uh, the imperialized countries. You know, Marx was very clear about this. Somewhere in there, I, I, I quote, for example, a very interesting quote that Marx, uh, a very interesting thing Marx said, the back in the mid 1840s, the late 1840s, when he was discussing free trade, he said, if if uh, uh, people cannot understand, I'm paraphrasing, but if people cannot understand how one country um, uh, can become rich at the at the expense of another, how are they going to understand how one class becomes enriches itself at the expense of one another? So you see very clearly that class and nation are side by side here. So, and and this is important to insist on because what happens generally speaking is that. Uh, even, even if people are in some sense Marxists or socialists, their focus is on trying to understand exploitation of one class by another. But what they fail to see is that there is also imperialism abroad and, and therefore they, they, they have no way of talking about how about the international relations of the capitalist world. Uh, except for what I call a flat cosmopolitanism, that somehow capitalism is going to make the entire world capitalist more or less like the first world countries. And only then we will be ready for socialist revolution, which means that in the real world, since in the real world, this is actually not possible because capitalism requires some countries to remain poor and exploited for other countries to be rich and advanced and so on. Since this is the case, it basically kicks the possibility of socialism down into the long grass of history. You know, so this is going to happen in some indeterminate future, which means it's never going to happen. So if we are real socialists, if we really want to talk about socialism, we have to begin 
not just with the fact of exploitation of one class by another, but also with the reality of imperialism and the exploitation of some nations by others, or a small group of nations of the vast majority of the people and the peoples of the planet. So in this then, finally, where how does uneven and combined development come? Because this, you also asked about that. So uneven and combined development comes into the picture because essentially it was Trotsky's way of referring to the dialectic between imperialism on the one hand and anti-imperialism on the other. And here also, this book and geopolitical economy uh, introduce certain interesting uh, wrinkles in the argument. So obviously there is imperialism and many people understand as this that imperialism has to be fought. But this struggle has typically taken the form of, you know, uh, people think of when people think of anti-imperialism, they think of the Vietnam War, they think of various other liberation struggles that have been armed struggles and so on and so forth. And I have no doubt that these are necessary, these often become necessary, have become necessary, not at all to diminish one whit the importance of armed struggle. But it is also to underline the simple fact that the real struggle against imperialism takes the form of the uh, in, intention and ability to develop your country economically, something like what China is doing today. Indeed, China in particular, uh, especially after seeing what has happened to the Soviet Union, China has been particularly insistent that its way of tackling the problem as of imperialism as it sees it uh, is essentially to promote development. And today China has been so successful in promoting this development that China has emerged as, uh, as, a, as a rival and a challenge to the capitalist world that is even more serious for a variety of reasons than what the Soviet Union had managed to be. And the Soviet Union was no mean challenge to capitalism. So these are some of the so core ideas which structure the book. And without going too much into detail, let me also hint at one other thing, which is that, you know, by not understanding imperialism, so many people on the left fail to understand the significance of what we may call actually existing socialism. That is to say the socialist uh, countries of today, because everybody agrees that the name actually existing socialism is applied because everybody agrees that there are no, you know, these countries, even China today is no Valhalla of socialism. It has not been achieved there. But the Chinese, as the Russians before them and the Vietnamese, etc., have set themselves on the path to achieving socialism. So this is actually existing socialism rather than some utopian socialism. So how should we understand this actually existing socialism? The way to understand it is that if it is the case that contrary to what some people expect, socialism has not emerged first in the more advanced capitalist countries, but have emerged has emerged rather in the, some of the least developed parts of the world. The reason for that is precisely that the possibility of this type of socialism, socialism that is born in the least developed rather than the most developed parts of the world, the possibility of this type of socialism is written into the logic of uneven and combined development. Because if you are committed to uh, achieving a broad-based economic prosperity, the surest way of getting there is actually the socialist. So that also throws some light 
on uh, or, or, or surest way of achieving that is to attempt the sort of socialism. Uh, and there are many ways of attempting it, but in some of these ways that we see in China or Russia or Vietnam, etc. Yeah, and I think you raise a crucial point about how the failure to address imperialism and emphasize the need of anti-imperialism has historically led to many splits within the left. It led to the demise of the Second International, which was the alliance of many different socialist organizations around the world, the socialist parties, and it split in 1916 over the question of World War I, which was an inter-imperialist war of the different capitalist powers. And even within the Second International, there was always a great debate about the anti-colonial struggles. And it was the Third International that was created after the Russian Revolution that emphasized the importance of anti-colonialism being part of the class struggle. And you point out in this chapter that even Marx himself had stressed the, the importance of recognizing imperialism, and he referred to it as the relations of producing nations. So not only the relations of producers and the class struggle within a country, but the relations of the different producing nations themselves. Can you speak about the historical debate about this leading up to today and you know what lessons we can learn from that? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you read Marx, you know, obviously uh, Marx is, you know, the key, one of the key points to understand about Marx is that his work was not complete. That is to say, when Marx set out, of course, he wrote many things and, and, and so on, but even with his magnum opus, Capital, um, he only, he, when he set out to, to write Capital, he had planned many volumes, like eight to ten volumes of Capital. And if you look at the various ways in which he conceptualized these volumes of Capital, it's very clear that at some point in the future, he intended to write about the international relations of the capitalist world, for which, which by which Marx did not mean just international political relations, but the kind of political economy, and therefore what I call the geopolitical economy, that uh, uh, that that would have been the only way in which he would have thought of the relations between countries. You, countries' relations are not just uh, uh, you know they are not just political relations, and it's not as if in their relations somehow politics is separated from economics. So these days people like to speak about geopolitics and geoeconomics. No, Marx would have thought of a single geopolitical economy of capitalist relations. And so if you read various things that Marx did write, though he, you know, he did not finish this work, but he wrote a lot of things. And if you read them carefully, put them in their context, you try to understand what Marx was really saying, then you see that Marx actually did realize that just as there is class exploitation and class struggle, there is international exploitation, struggle, and so on. And this is what he termed, and he, the, and, and by the way, he also understood, uh, contrary to what many people imagine, you know, many people think that Marx was some sort of old theorist of globalization, that he, uh, you know, he thought that the uh, capitalism would necessarily lead to a kind of a borderless world in which capitalism would create almost like a single country and eventually we would be left with a single world world girding capitalist class and a single world girding proletarian class and the two would go at it and then then you would have socialism in some this is completely unreal and marx never had any such idea what marx also realizes that countries engage in complex relations which include the state uh, uh, engaging in very uh, great degree of, of intervention in order to 
contest the domination of other states. So, for example, he writes about how it's perfectly understandable that countries like Germany or the United States would regard the British domination of the world market of their time with hostility, and they would then proceed to, 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 to follow mercantilist policies, protectionist policies, policies aimed at uh, creating industry in their own countries, that this is a natural consequence of capitalism. And if this were natural to capitalism, then, it, then the kind of globalization or cosmopolitanism that is imagined by some Marxists would never be possible. The, the capitalist world would not only remain divided among countries who would uh, relate to one another politically in a, in a political economy of conflict and so on and, and struggle. Uh, so, so this would always be the case. So, so, so Marx is very aware of that. And that is what really, for me, when I read this, I feel that if Marx did a critical political economy, then what he would have thought of in terms of the international relations of countries of the capitalist world, what he called the relations of producing nations inevitably as a sort of geo political economy. So that's, that's the key. Yeah. And you raise another very interesting point in this chapter about ideological hegemony of the ruling class. And there's a very famous quote from Marx that the dominant ideas in a society are the ideas of the ruling classes. However, you apply that, that analysis also once again to the international level. So I just want to read a, a very interesting quote from this chapter. You write, quote, just as the dominant ideas in a society are the ideas of the ruling classes in which their special interests are tricked out in the garb of general social interests, so too at the international level, the dominant ideas are the ideas of the ruling classes of the dominant nations in which their special interests are articulated as those of the countries they dominate. And you mentioned, for instance, that at the peak of the British Empire, the ideological hegemony was promoting free markets and free trade. And also at the, in the, the era of spheres of influences in different regional empires, there were regional ideas promoted. During the first Cold War, the U.S. promoted this concept of the so-called free world against, you know, uh, juxtaposed against the communist world. And then in the 1990s, you had the rise of the hegemony, the, uh, the ideology of U.S. hegemony, of globalization. So can you talk about the ideological hegemony of the ruling classes and how it applies at the international stage, not simply within countries? Yeah, I, 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 that's a, also another really uh, important question. And before I get into that, let me also say, uh, I, I didn't answer a part of your previous question, and it has to do precisely with the issue of ideological hegemony. So why is it that so many Marxists uh, have essentially lost access to the real core and essence of Marx's work? Why is it that there is so much systematic misunderstanding of Marx, not just on, on the part of bourgeois theorists, who you can expect will misunderstand Marx and do so for in very calculated ways, but people who call themselves Marxists have lost the ability to understand this. And this has to do with precisely a form of ideological domination, because basically, uh, what I have discovered in a, in, a, in a lot of the theoretical underlaboring that I've done in order to write what I've been writing over the last several last couple of decades is that what began to happen to Marxism uh, uh, was tied up with the fact 
that basically already political economy, classical political economy up to Marx was already quite critical of capitalism. So for example, even somebody like Ricardo, who was a parliamentarian, a representative of the bourgeoisie and so on, even he understood and insisted that only labor produces wealth. Now, if you insist that only labor produces wealth, then there's absolutely no justification for capitalists taking profit, uh, 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 bankers taking interest, landlords taking rent, etc. And this had already given rise to certain types of currents of socialism that were that we may call Ricardian socialism. Now, what began to happen, of course, with Marx coming along and then solving, as we were discussing in the past, in the previous programs, solving the whole issue, the, the riddle of value and, and showing where surplus value came from, he produced his, his engagement with, critical, with classical political economy, produced an indictment of capitalism that was massive. So after Marx's intervention, capital could not survive without manufacturing a new ideology to serve it. And that new ideology was precisely what we today call neoclassical economics or marginalist economics, which is essentially the economics that will be taught to you if you go to learn economics in the overwhelming majority of economics departments around the world. And so now this was already born within a few years of the publication of Capital. And by the time you get to the 1880s and 1890s, you already have educated people who are trained in this new form of economics. And then some of them, they get radicalized and they arrive at Marxism. They, they want to be Marxist. They try to engage with Marxism. But unfortunately, because of this background training, they actually fail to understand Marx and they spend, and since that time I have documented how you have seen a, a generation upon generation of people who call themselves Marxist economists. And they are constantly trying to fit Marxism, which has, is totally different from neoclassical economics, into the theoretical and methodological mode of neoclassical economics and this will, enterprise will always fail but even in failing they have prevented people who want to try to understand Marx from understanding what Marx really said. So this is a really interesting example and that is basically the key reason why Marx's work is not understood and why imperialism is not understood because in this tradition uh, there are many things wrong with it but one of the key things is that which is then imported into Marxist economics, is that the very idea of contradiction is denied. And once you deny the fact that capitalism is contradictory, you don't need imperialism. And you have people who say they are Marxists and they are Marxist economists. And they say, oh, well, of course, we condemn imperialism. It's very bad when imperialism happens. But you know what? It is not necessary to capitalism. This couldn't be further from what Marx said. But they say it in the name of Marx, and this is very problematic. Now, that was my what, what I left out of the previous one. Now, let me come to the really key questions you were asking now about, you know, how is it that the dominant idea, so, you know, uh, uh, Marx says in the German ideology, I think, that the dominant ideas of every society are the ideas of the ruling class. So I then extrapolate from them there, and as I think Marx would have done, um, to say that therefore at the international level where there is no one ruling class, the world is divided into a multitude of states, uh, but nevertheless there are some dominant nations. 
And so at the international level, what happens is that the ideas of the dominant nations become sort of the dominant ideas about how relate how countries relate to one another. And what is peculiar, so 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 there is uh, what is peculiar about the, all the dominant ideas that have governed the capitalist world since the beginnings of capitalism. What is the one essential thing that unites them? It is that they are inevitably almost always uh, ideas about their the economically cosmopolitan ideas. That is, so they are their ideas in which the world economy appears as if it was seamlessly unified, in which national boundaries don't matter, where there are no national economies, there is a world economy. Uh, so that is the idea of free trade or globalization, in which, you know, 19th century free trade or 20th century globalization, in which the world is unified by markets. Or you have, uh, you know, when the role of states in economies could no longer be denied uh, by the late 20th century, you had the emergence of ideas like US hegemony. And the, uh, the idea there was that, yes, of course, it's not possible to have a completely free market economy and therefore some role of the state is always necessary. But then you know what? You can have one single state performing the state role. So US hegemony theorists love to say that the United States is kind of acting like a quasi-world government, uh, a world government in all but, but name, because it sort of provides the public goods, it, its currencies, the world currency and, and blah, blah, and so on. It provides the world with security and blah, blah, and so on. So, so the, then the single state unifies the whole world into a seamless world economy. Now, what is what is it about this unification that is so uh, that is deeply connected with the dominance of some countries? Well, it is that by pro proposing these ideas, what these countries, the dominant countries, are doing by expounding ideas about economic cosmopolitanism, etc., what these countries are doing is they are essentially saying that all the countries of the world should have open economies, that this is the recipe for economic success, which of course is not true because as various uh, critical writers have pointed out, all the successful countries that have developed, going back to the UK, through Germany, Japan, the United States, etc., no country has developed without extensive state intervention, often extensive protection. But this is denied. So the point of espousing this ideology of economic cosmopolitanism, of free trade, globalization, free flows of capital goods, etc., is to ensure that the dominated countries are persuaded with as little cost as possible to open themselves up for to the entry of you know, imperialist corporations, commodities, and also open themselves up to supply the imperialist countries with the raw materials and labor that they need. So this is the key. And that's why the dominant ideas in the capitalist world are always economically cosmopolitan about open economies, the seamless unification of a single world economy, etc. Because imperialism relies on the subordinated countries' economies always remaining open. And that is why 
countries like China, countries like the Soviet Union, countries like Venezuela today or Iran today or, uh, uh, you know, all these countries that say, you know what, actually, we would like to develop on our own terms, please, if you don't mind, we are not going to open ourselves up to, to your corporations and your commodities and to supply your needs as, as, as you please. We, uh, we have our own agendas. That is why these countries are regarded with such venom by the leading imperialist countries. Yeah, very well said. It's really important to stress that because oftentimes people will acknowledge that there clearly is this U.S. aggression campaign against independent countries like, you know, Venezuela. And there is very little interrogation of why that is. I mean, people will say maybe, well, you know, Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves. Yeah, but specifically, it has asserted its national control over those oil reserves and said that that oil belongs to the people of Venezuela. It is state property, and we are going to use the exports of oil to fund social programs, not to enrich foreign investors. Now, Radhika, you made a very important point, and you actually um, you foreshadowed the question I wanted to ask you which is about the inextricable role of the state within capitalism. And this is something that you stress throughout your chapter. And it's a very important point because it's a corrective to this libertarian idea that we constantly hear, especially in the United States, that, but also, you know, in Latin America, it's growing, you know, the, the far right in Argentina has this libertarian narrative of this kind of Pinochet style politics where simultaneously they're advocating a hyper-militarization of the punitive apparatus of the state, including prisons and police and the military, but they're insisting that we should free all markets, limit all state intervention in the economy. But you've pointed out that for the entire history of capitalism, it has been a history in which the state has played an important role in helping to basically prevent the system from destroying itself because of the inherent contradictions that we've been talking about, the inherent tendency of the rate of profit to fall, the inherent trends toward monopolization and financializations, the problem of overproduction. With all of these problems, not to mention, you know, what they call externalities, environmental destruction, pollution. So you stress that every single advanced capitalist country, rich country, they develop themselves, one, obviously through imperialism and slavery and exploitation, but also through heavy state intervention, protectionist policies, mercantilist policies. You, you point out the example, for instance, of Germany, Japan, and the United States that develop their economies, again, through colonialism and imperialism and slavery, but also through significant protectionist policies while the British Empire, which was the hegemonic force at the time, was the one trying to push these cosmopolitan ideas you were talking about of free trade and, and globalization. So can you talk about the, the relationship historically of capitalism and the state and how this idea that you can simply have a free capitalist system, laissez-faire, free market, all of that, this libertarian idea, is complete fantasy. It has never existed and never will exist. Indeed, even Engels even said that we will never let it exist. 
Um, this was particularly in relation, he was writing a, a letter to one of his colleagues, Conrad Schmidt, who had raised a, a question about that. You know, will we ever live in a world of pure capitalism? And Engels said, not only is this not possible, but in fact, we revolutionaries will never come, let it come to that. The idea was that, you know, we will make socialist revolution long before any such horrific eventuality occurs. And this, by the way, is also one of the core propositions of Karl Polanyi, who I also take very seriously. And I think he has a lot more in common with Marx and Engels than most people imagine. Um, because Karl Polanyi basically said that if you actually allow market relations to govern, which is, you know, to, to, to govern all relations, to replace all social relations, there will be nothing all society left anymore and human beings themselves will perish because human beings cannot exist without society. So uh, that's a very, very basic point. But, uh, uh, but and, then, and then to go to the next level, what I also argue, of course, is that capitalism actually cannot live without state intervention. So for all the rhetoric about free markets and so on, in fact, what most capitalist, uh, 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 most capitalist and capitalists and pro-capitalist intellectuals actually mean when they say free markets is that people with property, people with capital, people who own the means of production should feel free to do whatever they like. Um, and, 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 and if they, if they are so free, I mean, so that is not freedom for everybody that in fact, uh, 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 that's just freedom for them. And of course, then the state, if such freedom is given to them, the state has to be around to pick up the pieces. Uh, every time uh, all the contradictions of capitalism would come into full flower, there would be regular crisis of overproduction and underconsumption. There would be the problem of the falling rates of profit. There will be problems of uh, inflation and deflation. There will be the problems of uh, environmental destruction, war, revolution, all of these problems. And the state has to be there to manage it. And that's why I have proposed the idea of the materiality of nations. There is absolutely no capitalist society in which the state has not played a very big role. And if you look, for example, at a, any kind of a, a statistical comparison today of the, of the uh, proportion of the economy that is accounted for by the state in different parts of the world, you will see that actually it is in the advanced capitalist countries that the state accounts for the biggest part of the uh, 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 of the social product. Uh, and, you know, many capitalist intellectuals may say that this is because of the welfare state, but had it not been for the welfare state, would capitalism still exist? So, uh, so that's the argument about materiality of nations, which is that states are necessary to manage the contradictions that are regularly created by capitalism on a multitude of different funds in a, in a multitude of different realms. And then further, you know, insofar as we have had, you know, even under neoliberalism, we haven't had, uh, you know, total laissez-faire, you know, like it as, as much as they would have loved to, neoliberals have not been successful in rolling back the state altogether. So substantial parts of welfare states still exist, etc., etc. Um, but even in the countries where they have gone the farthest in trying to roll back the state, what you have found is that actually those countries have actually dis displayed the worst growth records uh, in terms of uh, capitalist growth accumulation, etc. So the United States and the UK, for example, are the countries which, with some of the weakest growth records in the neoliberal period. 
So, whereas, you know, countries like Japan and, and the Germany, which although they have also taken a neoliberal turn, they have retained substantial parts of their industrial base. They have tended to do better in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, growth and, and so on and so forth. Now, if you take a look at third world countries as well, those third world countries that have more effective forms of state intervention have historically been the most successful, whereas those third world countries that have followed the pro-capitalist IMF, World Bank, structural adjustment, Washington consensus type policies, they are the ones who have performed the weakest. So if you put all these things together, what you come, come up with is that, number one, even capitalisms require massive state intervention in order to exist and supply even some broad, you know, supply any genuinely broad-based prosperity. And so, you know, if the state is going to play such a big role, then why should you not have the state playing an outright socialist role rather than uh, playing a role in which, uh, uh, in the name of supporting people, it actually supports big corporations and so on. Yeah, Radhika, you point out in the book that even the idea of the long boom of capitalism, the golden era of capitalism, and we constantly hear, you know, that life was so good in the 50s and 60s. This is the golden era of capitalism. Well, actually, that was the era of Keynesianism. You know, it was Richard Nixon who famously said the Republican right wing U.S. president. He said, we're all Keynesians now before the emergence of neoliberalism. There was very heavy state intervention in the economy. And that was also the period with the highest rates of growth, the highest levels of prosperity. And so you point out that, you know, in the past four decades of neoliberalism, it has exposed that the golden era actually relied on socialistic measures implemented by capitalist countries. And in the past 40 years, it's actually been a long downturn of financialization and productive decline, as you put it. So maybe you can expand on that idea a bit more. Yeah, it's very simple. You know, when um, if you read what Marx was talking about and what he felt was, you know, when he felt capitalism was going to be ripe for transition to socialism, he's very clear. Basically, Marx says that capitalism is ripe for socialism when it arrives at the monopoly stage. And he has some, and I've quoted in this chapter, you know, he basically says that when capitalism arrives at the monopoly phase, what has happened is that the very processes of competition have led to that logical conclusion. Competition has produced monopoly because in the process of competition, uh, which is the process in which only the, uh, the of the survival of the fittest, the fittest have survived and they have wiped out the, uh, the rest and therefore they are they remain monopolies. But by now, uh, in every sector, if uh, every sector is dominated by one big monopoly corporation, then Marx felt that it would become very clear to everybody how social is the nature of production. And therefore, what would be more logical than that, you know, what is called private production is actually social production and therefore let us socialize it. And Marx thought that this is what would happen. And of course, uh, but we can have a whole other discussion about this, but uh, essentially the rise of neoclassical economics, which essentially arose in one sense, uh, essentially arose to deny the reality that the arrival of monopolies of the monopoly stage of capitalism had made capitalism ripe for socialist transition. So anyway, capitalism had already arrived at this stage at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, 
And once it had arrived there, in fact, many people, and, and then, then you see we had the big 30 years crisis, which was both a crisis of imperialism and a crisis of capitalism. And most people felt Keynes was among them, Polanyi was another, uh, felt, and Hayek was a third. Hayek feared it, Keynes and Polanyi looked forward to it. They felt that the world at the end of the Second World War would take a turn decisively to the left towards some kind of socialism. They, they each had their own ideas about what this would be, but that this was the expectation. And many people felt, ah, well, you know, at the end of the Second World War, you've got the golden age. So these hopes and fears were refuted, but not so, because if you actually look at what happened after the Second World War, you got Keynesian welfare states in first world countries, you got outright communism in the socialist countries and in the third world countries, the countries that were emerging from colonialism, you got distinctly left-leaning attempts to arrive at some kind of socialistic forms of development, etc., etc. So in all of these ways, the world did turn left, just not as decisively as feared. And this left turn was at the heart of the golden age. If it was not for this left turn, we would not have had the golden age of capitalism at all. And we see that all the more clearly because when the underlying capitalist nature uh, of the first world societies eventually led in the 1970s to crisis, because capitalism always leads to crisis, there were two different possibilities. One, people said, let's deepen the socialistic reforms of the post-Second World War period, and the other said, no, they are the problem, let's roll them back. Well, the second guys won, the second set of people won, the neoliberals won. They did substantially roll back a lot of the socialistic elements of the post-war golden age. Uh, the idea was that they were going to free capitalism from the shackles of these socialist obligations and, 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 and social obligations and so on, and this would restore capitalism's productive vigor and you would get great rates of growth, etc. Nothing doing. Capitalism was already in its monopoly phase. It, it did not, could not display any of the virtues of competitive capitalism, which is what the argument relied on. And instead, it only proceeded to become ever more highly financialized. That is to say, not producing more, but, but essentially using rent and, and, and interest as forms of income, which siphon off the income of the real product producers, whether they were workers or even capitalists for that matter. So you got this extremely sick form of capitalism, which is an increasingly rentier form of capitalism, capitalism that profits without producing. But, and so when you look back at the result of 40 years of neoliberalism, it becomes all the clearer that Marx's insights were correct, that ever since, um, the capitalism entered the monopoly phase, that it has been right for socialism. Uh, capitalism is not going to make the whole world uh, 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 develop to the level of uh, the first world countries. This is not possible because the prosperity of the first world countries is in critical ways reliant on the poverty of the third world countries. Yeah, and I know you have to run, Radhika, and we have to wrap up here, but um, my final question is related directly to that. In this chapter, you talked about the value of money and you cited the work of the economists Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik, and they had emphasized 
that one of the key elements of imperialism is that the imperialist countries in the core of the capitalist world system want to depress the wages, decrease the wages of workers in the periphery, in the third world. And you add that you agree with that. However, you would also add that another element undergirding the value of money, that is especially the dollar, is through financialization. So maybe you can briefly talk about the goal of imperialism to depress the wages and therefore the economic power of workers in the periphery, but also using financialization and as an instrument to maintain its own power. No, I mean, first of all, let me say that I'm a great admirer of Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik. I think they are absolutely brilliant. And I think that the books we have seen more recently, the two books they have published on imperialism, in which they make this critical point that you just emphasized, Ben. Um, I think they are they're really fruits of decades of working, thinking, and so on. So let me get to the main points. because uh, so, so, the, so the key point that they make is that uh, and by the way, this has recently been corroborated by other writers as well. So let me first explain what this key point is. The key point is that the value of money relies on keeping the value of the products, uh, of, of raw materials, especially commodities of all sorts, cheap. Bulk of these come from third world countries, or at least the first world countries are reliant on having cheap commodities from third world countries. And um, so... The key to keeping the prices of these commodities low is to not permit development in third world countries. Because if imagine third world countries started developing, then they would demand more iron and steel, more copper, more uh, wheat, more food, more everything. And that and, and the key the interesting thing about these uh, commodities is that their supply is not elastic not elastic in the short run. That is to say, if suddenly there is an increase in the price of oil, it's not like people can respond by supplying lots more oil. You need to open new oil wells, etc., etc. So the supply is not so elastic, and that means that when the price of uh, when, when there is a great demand, inevitably price will go up. And of course, as you know. The value of money is inversely related to the prices of what it can buy. So uh, the fewer things it can buy, the less is the value of money. So the value of first world money, they point out and point out many things, but this is one of the core points is that it's reliant on the poverty of the masses of the third world because their prosperity would put such a demand, would increase the demand for, for commodities to such an extent, including food products, that first world countries could no longer have them so cheaply. And, and that this is what they uh, point out is the reason why the key demand of first world countries is to deny to third world countries the very policies, policies of protection, state direction, etc., etc., that would make for their prosperity. The very policies which have they have used when they have themselves developed. So that is their point, and I, I entirely agree with them. But what I also emphasize along with that is that in order to keep up the value of the dollar in particular, uh, what the financial what the US has done is it has essentially uh, 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 created created opportunities for the wealthy people of first world countries to invest, or sorry, of all countries, including third world countries, to essentially 
uh, buy more dollars, not because the United States has such wonderful things to export to the rest of the world, it doesn't, but because the United States promises them financial, reliable financial assets, financial assets in which they can make a lot of money. So essentially, the uh, what I do by making this argument is, first of all, I explain what is the intimate connection between the value of the dollar and the financialization that we have witnessed over the neoliberal period, particularly in the United States, where the United States financial system has ballooned into something very large. Um, so, uh, so essentially, because the United States has, uh, as we've talked about in the past, the United States has uh, 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 supplied the world with liquidity by running deficits, this would ordinarily, as Robert Triffin pointed out, this would ordinarily put a, have a depressive effect on the value of the dollar because the bigger the deficits, the less the dollar will be valued. So what the United States has done is it has, uh, in, in order to counteract the Triffin dilemma, uh, it has essentially uh, asked incre artificially increased the demand for dollars by giving the rest of the world a, a financial reasons to hold dollars. So you may not want to hold dollars in order to, to trade or invest, but you hold dollars in order to participate in essentially the, 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 the casino that the United States has opened. And that is that is my additional reason. So I, I see the two types of reasoning as sort of two parts of the explanation, or two essential parts of the explanation of how the dollar has survived so far. So I also meant to add, by the way, that both of these arguments are now being proven true in the this moment where the dollar system is increasingly fragile. So uh, Prabhatinutsa's uh, uh, argument has been corrupt. Uh, confirmed, for example, with people like Zoltan Pojar, who is regarded as this whiskey of understanding the dollar system and, and understanding the U.S. financial system, where he basically says that the U.S. dollar is now up against what he calls commodity encumbrance, that is to say increases in prices of commodities as the rest of the world prospers, industrializes, etc., etc. And in and my argument has also been corroborated because with the rise of inflation, the Federal Reserve, which has for so long been uh, essentially expanding the amount of financial assets that are available, is suddenly forced to increase interest rates, which has the opposite effect. It puts a, a lid on financialization, which is also uh, uh, attacking the other pillar of the dollar system. Yeah, well, I, I'll add that for people who want to get more analysis of the dollar system, Radhika and Michael Hudson have a great series as part of their program, Geopolitical Economy Hour, looking at the dollar system and de-dollarization around the world. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately, Radhika has to go. So this was our discussion of chapter three in her book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. This chapter is the geopolitical economy of capitalism and socialism. As I said earlier, you can get access to this book for free. There is a PDF. I will link to it in the description below and you can follow along as we continue analyzing more parts of Radhika's very important book. I want to thank you, Radhika. It's always a real pl pleasure. Thanks for giving us your time today. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure, always. And we'll be back soon to talk about Chapter 4. So thanks to everyone. I'll see you all next time.